If you would like to borrow a Bible, would you raise your hand, please? And while the ushers are passing out Bibles, I just want to tell you, there are some people sitting next to you this morning that are pretty fired up right now uh, from the things they have seen around the world in lost people and suffering people. Uh, many have just returned from a variety of mission trips from around the world. Um, uh, Natalie Scholl's up here from just back from Kenya. Uh, come talk to her. She's got wonderful things to tell you. Uh, um, Kathy Bogats and uh, Scott Ewan back from Guatemala. And just the stories to tell. And, and a variety of people, several of you just got back from Haiti a couple days ago with stories to tell. Dan and Alicia, were you guys in, in lots of places? In Panama City, yes. And South Asia before that, yeah. Just a few places, yes. And so there's people sitting next to you, just, you just really could talk to you. And there are many of you who are leaving to go soon. And, and this is just awesome that our church is doing stuff, you know. We're sharing the gospel. We're caring for those suffering locally and globally. So it's really encouraging. And, and what, what we're intending to do is in our church, it may not be too flashy or something, but we're trying to raise up the next generation of leaders, not so we can grow some big old honking church. That's not the goal. It's just so that we can get rid of you. We can send you out around the world to serve. And it's so encouraging to see many of you doing that. Uh, just like we just did a second ago with Danielle. She's leaving tomorrow. She's going to, to proclaim the gospel. And we're also training and raising up the next generation of pastors and preachers. And, and part of that is giving them an opportunity to preach here uh, on Sunday morning. Our preacher this morning is Ryan Harding. And Ryan is a graduate of the University of Florida. Uh, for those of you from uh, that school, I'm sorry about yesterday when you lost, but I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, and he will soon be a graduate of uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, he currently leads our college uh, ministry, and he leads an ethos community. He's married to Katie, and both of them have such a heart for the Lord, and they're just a lot of fun to be around. So, Ryan, come on up here and bring us the word, bro. Thanks, Jason. Good morning. Yeah, the Gators. It was, it was not pretty. Uh, so we're still, still licking our wounds from that, but God is good, you know. Um, as Jason mentioned, um, I've, I've been at EBF probably for the past couple of years, I guess, interning here. And I've got to say, it is, it's been such a delight to get to know this church and to really see that, I mean, we are the people of God, but to really experience this people as a family, you know, as a family away from home and a family of God. Um, it's been so encouraging, so amazing to see how God has been powerfully at work in our lives, like he was, he was mentioning, seeing people go out and serve overseas, just seeing uh, people passionate about sharing the gospel. And, and so I pray that this morning God would work powerfully in our hearts through his word as well. So for those, um, for those of you who have been here for about the past year, we have been going through the book of Matthew, and we're getting close to the end. Within the next couple of weeks, we'll be rounding it out with Easter. Um, but if you've, if you've been here through that whole time, you may have noticed that one theme that comes up again and again through a number of passages is this, this theme of the kingdom of God. Um, it, 
you know, we've, we've seen a lot of different aspects of the kingdom of God. So we've heard about the ethics of the kingdom of God, like in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen the power of the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching ministry and his healing ministry. And we've also seen the priorities of the kingdom of God. We've seen that in the way that Jesus cares about the people who are marginalized, in the way that he goes out to those who are outcasts, in the way that he welcomes those who have little social status, like children or the uneducated. So there's been this massive emphasis on the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew. And throughout the book, we've also seen that there has been resistance to God's kingdom. Sometimes severe resistance. Jesus being turned away, Jesus being thrown out, even threatened to be stoned, the disciples endangered. Um, And the passage that we're going to look at this morning in, in Matthew 27 is the culmination of that resistance to the kingdom of God. It is the world's unwelcoming response to God's kingdom, chiefly in putting the king on trial. And in this trial, there's not simply one person who judges him, um, but rather we see four jurors, you know, so to speak, four people who make a decision about Christ, but they're not judging his innocence or his guilt. They're judging whether they accept him or reject him. And so this morning, we're going to look at who those jurors are and what they decide about Christ. Second, we're going to see where we fall in the story. And then third, we'll see where Jesus falls in the story. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word, this is chapter, this is chapter 27 from Matthew. We're reading from the ESV. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a barrier place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, 
not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate, so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, our king, who came to lead us to you. We pray, please, speak to our hearts this morning, and may Christ reign in our hearts through faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Four jurors. The first juror we see is represented by the religious leaders. Now, throughout the book of Matthew, we see that there are, there's, a, there's a lot of resistance to the kingdom of God, and that chiefly comes in the form of conflict with the religious leaders. Jesus runs into a lot of conflict with these chief priests. Um, they, they mainly question his teaching. They try to trap him by asking him these these loaded questions. Uh, they get disgruntled by his ministry, by his healing of people on the Sabbath, or his uh, associating with outcasts and people who were considered unclean. But what really set them off was that Jesus challenged their authority. He called them hypocrites because of their overemphasis on the letter of the law and their neglect of the spirit of the law. And so after they had had enough, they decided the best way to deal with Jesus was to have him killed. They brought two charges against him. First was a religious charge, namely blasphemy. That was what we looked at last week, what Josh talked about in his sermon, that Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, and they rejected him as that. The second charge they brought was a political charge. The reason for this was that any capital punishment that took place in a Roman province had to be approved by the Roman governor or procurator, who we're going to look at later. But Roman policy was to not get involved with local cultural issues. They just cared about governmental issues. And so 
the religious leaders needed to trump up a charge that would sufficiently bend the arm of the governor to ratify their decision to crucify Christ. So the second charge they brought against Christ, the political charge, was sedition. Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, and therefore he was challenging Caesar's authority. He was subverting Roman government. Now, the truth is, they didn't really care about the Roman government. Uh, They didn't care about subverting it. Uh, They just wanted a guilty verdict, and so they threw whatever charge would stick at him. But the question that should ring in our minds is, weren't the religious leaders actually looking for a Messiah, for someone who would meet these characteristics? A religious leader, maybe a political leader? Uh, Yes, but they never expected it to come in the manner or the form of Christ. And they especially didn't expect the content of Christ's teachings. You see, they prized their tradition, which was very legalistic. But Jesus came showing grace, teaching about mercy and forgiveness. When Jesus did this, he infringed on their authority, and they decided to do away with him. The first juror represented in the religious leaders, rejected Christ because they cherished their position, their power, and their control more than Jesus. The second juror we see is Judas. Now we know that he is one of the 12 disciples who Mark says had, you know, all the disciples had been called to be with Jesus. Judas was one of them. But from early on we see Judas cared more about coin than Christ. He acted as the treasurer on behalf of the disciples, yet he regularly pilfered through the coin purse. And just a week before Good Friday, you may recall the sermon from a few weeks ago, Jesus was dining at a house in Bethany. uh, And a woman came in and poured this expensive perfume all over Jesus to anoint him. It was this lavish act of love. And in John's account, we see that Judas leads the complaints by the disciples that, that says this is a waste. You know, we, we could have taken this expensive perfume, a year's wage, sold it, given it to the poor. Judas didn't, you know, most likely didn't really care that much about the poor. He really cared about lining his own pockets. So this was cutting in on his profit. Jesus' affirmation of this woman's generous act of love was the final straw for Judas. So we see in all the gospel accounts right after that, he goes off to the leader's to betray Jesus. The uh, price is significant. It's mentioned here and it's mentioned elsewhere. He was sold for 30 silver coins. We see in Exodus, that's the price of remuneration for a slave under ancient Israelite law. A slave who had been killed was paid 30 coins. Remember that. What was behind Judas' betrayal? Well, He wanted a king that would make him prosperous. Jesus cared about the poor and the destitute and the marginalized, though. And in fact, one pillar of Jesus' ministry was that wealth can be a very thing that would keep you out of heaven. That was all Judas wanted. So after he'd had enough, he sold him out. Matthew cites this event as the fulfillment of prophecy, which is a prophetic Uh, This prophetic reference is a combination of two prophetic events that happen in Zechariah and in Jeremiah, which parallel what happened to Jesus, namely that he was 
He was being cheaply valued. He was rejected by the Jews. And his betrayal money was used to acquire something that pollutes. So in the end, we see this heart-wrenching picture of Judas's despair. He's utterly undone. He's filled with remorse and regret. This coin that he thought would satisfy him leaves him empty than ever. And how does he respond? He goes and hangs himself. Unlike Peter's response, Peter repented, Judas ends his life. Now some of you may think when you hear that, your mind may go to the issue of suicide, right? Um, it's, I think it's important to remember Judas was not condemned because he killed himself. Judas was condemned because he betrayed Christ. He rejected Christ. Some of us may have grown up in a tradition that taught suicide was the unpardonable sin. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said the unpardonable sin is rejecting him. It is attributing to God, is attributing to the devil, God's redemptive work. God's grace is sufficient to cover all our sins, including suicide. Now, there's also a pastoral element to that, and we don't want to justify or even encourage that. Um, and so if, you, if that is something you struggle with or need to talk more about, um, we have pastors on staff. Come and talk to me or talk to any of the pastors. Um, the second juror, Judas, rejected Christ. He chairs prosperity more than Jesus. The third juror was Pilate, the political leader. Pilate was the procurator of this Roman province of Samaria and Judea. He, uh, procurators were typically governed to, uh, were charged to govern small troubled areas, such as this province. And Pilate launched right into his investigation by asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's the one question we get in Matthew. Jesus essentially answers yes, like you've said. It kind of puts the words in his mouth. Pilate now really breaks the mold. We see in John's account, Pilate does not believe Jesus' claims. In fact, even kind of sarcastically confronts him and says, you know, Jesus claims to be the truth, and Pilate says, what is truth? You know, in this very sarcastic way. So Pilate definitely doesn't believe in Jesus, but he does believe Jesus is innocent. He definitely doesn't think he deserves to die. Yet even though Pilate was convinced of Jesus' innocence, he still hands him over to be executed. Why? What, what was behind this? So at first read, it may seem like Judas is just a people pleaser, right? He gets before this big mob of people and they are saying, crucify him, crucify him, and he just caves. Um, but when we look at other historical accounts of Pilate, he doesn't seem like a real softy or a real pushover, you know? He's... he's across the board, considered a cruel and harsh ruler to the Jewish people. He, he he's, cares very little about what the Jewish people think and even less about if he offends them. And so uh, he'd have a number of run-ins with them. He had, like, it, when he first come to town, he put the Roman standards up in Jerusalem, which they considered idolatrous. And so, uh, so there was a big hoopla over that. He stole money from the Jewish temple to build a, an aqueduct. And then when they protested, he just sent soldiers to kill the protesters. So there's no love lost between Pilate and the, Judas, and, and the Jews. So what was his motive in rejecting Christ? It wasn't so much approval as it was 
political expediency. You see, as the governor of this region, Pilate was expected to maintain order. He'd already had several scuffles, like we mentioned, and if another riot broke out, it might mean his job or it might mean his life. So he tried to do whatever he could to get rid of the problem. You know, in other accounts, we see first he sends him to Herod, tries to push him off. Herod just sends him back. He tries half measures, like saying, okay, I'll just scourge him, and then I'll let him go. When, that, when they don't take that, he says, uh, well, how about this? I'll do the right thing for the wrong reason. I will release him um, by putting up Barabbas, this, you know, notorious criminal. And so they definitely won't choose Barabbas. They'll choose Jesus. So he'll be off the hook. I'll be off the hook. So to a surprise, they want Barabbas. His last measure is he protests his innocence. So he just brings out water and washes his hands and say, I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. You guys do whatever you want. But no amount of hand washing will clear his guilt. Despite believing Jesus was innocent and even being warned by his wife that Jesus was innocent, he handed Jesus over to death. The third juror rejected Christ because he cherished expediency more than him. And finally, the, the last juror is represented by the crowds. In the Gospels, we have a picture of the crowds as typically being people on the fence, right? They are uh, people who are impressed with Jesus' ministry, with his teaching, with his, with his authority, um, but they're not fully committed. And the extent of their commitment tim- tends to end with amazement. Not only that, the crowds can be fickle. So while, they're, while they like his miracles, they uh, will turn away at hard teachings. So it's not surprising that Palm Sunday, five days before Good Friday, the crowds lined the streets as Jesus rode in on a donkey, meek and mild, and they cried, Hosanna on the highest. Hosanna, salvation. You are salvation. Five days later, they cry, crucify him. They want to put him to death. What brought about this change? Verse 20 seems to make it pretty clear. The chief priests and the elders persuaded them. The crowds chose to believe the ideas of those with political and religious clout rather than Christ. They were unduly swayed to accept propagated cultural narratives. You see, Barabbas was a zealot, which means that he so radically opposed the Roman rule in Judea that he was even willing to try and overthrow it by force. Because of that, he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. The crowds were ruled by the idea that their freedom from Roman rule would come by force rather than through forgiveness like Christ taught. And so despite their one-time amazement at Jesus' life and ministry, when push came to shove, they chose the incarcerated insurrectionist over the incarnated Son of God. The fourth juror, the crowds, rejected Christ. They cared more about popular ideas than Jesus. So there we have the verdict of the four jurors, right? The religious leaders reject him because of they cherished power. Judas rejected him because, they cherished prosperity, because he cherished prosperity. Pilate rejected him because he cherished political expediency. And the crowds rejected him because they cherished popular ideas. All peas. Notice that. That was John Bechtel's recommendation to me. All peas. So I know that was a lot of, a lot of information. So now, now let's turn the, 
attention to ourselves. Where do we fit into this story? When we read this, what do we do with it? I think it's tempting when we read this to say, I wouldn't have done that. You know, I would have accepted Christ. They, they really muffed it up. But would we have? Before we answer that question, why don't we think about, let's just, let's just process through, why don't we think about how we might fit in to any one of these characters? So, for example, the first juror, the religious leaders, they rejected Christ because they cherished power. What's a way that we grasp for power and control? As I thought about it this week, you know, I thought there, there may be some people uh, who, when you ask the question of control, they're like, oh yeah, I'm easily a control freak. You know, I'm a, a kind of author, authoritarian. Um, I like to be in control. That's, you know, you had me at control, check. That's me. Uh, usually we're more sophisticated in nuancing and explaining and hiding our sin. And so let me tell you, let me tell you an example of what I'm thinking about. Um, my wife and I, Katie, celebrated our one-year anniversary uh, just a few weeks ago. And um, first year of marriage has been awesome. Uh, it, it's been such a delight. And um, there have been a lot of changes that I've noticed in, in our first year of marriage. So the quality of the food I've eaten has changed a lot. You know, it shifted from, like, Lucky Charms for dinner to, like, lasagna or, like, some kind of fancy. We had pork chops with a pineapple salsa last night. I was never eating that, you know. It was, it was quesadillas, frozen quesadillas from Sam's. Quality foods improved a lot. Sleep patterns have improved a lot. Um, I'm getting a lot more sleep. I'm going to bed a lot earlier now. Um, but, but one thing that has, uh, that has noticeably changed is we start, I started receiving these mailers from Pottery Barn in, in our mailbox. Right? I was never getting that before. And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed when I, because it comes to my school mailbox, so, like, all my guys see it and have to, like, hide it in my backpack. And, but their wives get the same thing also. So, um, so anyways, we, we get these mailers from Pottery Barn, and so we'll, we'll sit down sometimes, you know, as we're going to bed or whatever, and, and just flip through them and look at some of the amazing stuff. Um, and I was, I've been flabbergasted at how nice some of this stuff is. Um, I don't, we don't have any pictures for you, but for those of you who have seen a Pottery Barn magazine, it is just, it's unreal. I mean, I don't know who has homes that look like this. I mean, um, there are these plush leather couches. There are these, these nice fireplaces with a nice little leather ottoman in the living place and a, a fur rug and, and paintings on the wall. That's also something that's changed since I've been married. We have decorations on the wall now. Um, so, uh, you know, this, it's just this cozy, really warm, really warm place. Very inviting. And it just, you know, when you look at the pictures, it makes you want to get a Starbucks latte and turn on the fireplace and get some wool socks on, right, and snuggle up with your Kindle and just read. Ah. What I noticed is that I've been looking through, as we look through these things, I don't just want the stuff in the magazines. I want what that stuff offers me. I want to be comfortable. 
I want to have an easy life. I want to be able to snuggle up by the fire where there's nothing to worry about. There's no crime. There's no injustices that I see. Everything is like Jason talked about. We're on the island, you know. I also had a conversation with uh, a friend a couple of weeks ago. My friend's name is Swain. He is an awesome godly man. He's a roommate, one of my roommates in college, and um, a major encouragement to me. He and his wife, Lisa, are planning to go and do missions work overseas in a couple of years after they finish, you know, paying off school loans and all that stuff. So right now, they're just working back in Florida and um, serving in their church, serving small group leaders, serving as interns at the church. Um, so as we were talking, one of the things he told me was that their church is planning this ministry to go into the projects in Gainesville to buy a, uh, like an old apartment, like a rundown apartment building or something, to kind of fix it up a little bit and then have the interns from the church live in the building and do this very, you know, very close ministry with the people in that, in that area. Um, to do Bible studies with them, to build relationships with them, to be close. Uh, and he topped it off by saying that uh, the pastors had actually done this several years ago. They had, they had moved in and lived there and this kind of thing. And they got, he said that the, um, he, they got to know the drug lords, and the drug lords would always vouch for them, say, hey, don't mess with the church folk, you know. They were like their bodyguards or something. And so as I was talking with Swain, I, I, you know, my verbal reaction was, dude, that's so awesome, that's like, man, that's really incarnational ministry. You're really, like, getting in there and getting your hands dirty and, like, really loving these people. And, that. in my mind, what I thought is, that sounds dangerous. Is it possible that our pursuit of comfort is really just a way of grasping for control? A way of ordering our environment, making it safe and easy, so that we don't have to worry about anything that might happen. Now, that's not to say that living in a nice place is bad. Um, you know, on all of these, there are obviously the, the, uh, the extremes and stuff, but you know, it, it's fine to live in a nice place and have a nice home and stuff. But I, th- I think what we have to assess is whether or not we are elevating comfortability over Christ. And a, a diagnostic question for this is what makes me afraid? What makes me afraid? Okay, let's think about the second juror, Judas. He rejected Christ because he cherished prosperity more. What is a way that we grasp for riches? Maybe some, would, you know, maybe some people would say, all I want to do is make a lot of money. I've actually talked to college students when I, I ask them, what do you want to do, you know, major in? They just say, I don't know, I just want to make a lot of money. I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's... Probably the best route to go. Um, probably most of us are more subtle than that. Uh, we may seek to build up riches in the name of security, being secure. We have investments, securities, bonds. Um, let me let me tell you about you know I mentioned Katie and I got married a year ago. So before we were getting married. A couple of months beforehand, you know, we were just in the thick of the planning process. For those of you who planned a wedding, you know it is crazy. It is chaotic. There are so many details. It's completely unnecessary. Um, 
the things that I thought you had to, man, I never knew. Um, so we, I was in the midst of that. One of the things that we had to do was move, right? So I was living up in the suburbs with a family, and we had to find an apartment down here. We had to get a truck, move all my stuff, and there was this stretch of days, even a week or more, where I remember laying in bed at night and thinking about, okay, well, what if, if we get this place and it'll be here, and it'll be, we can, but we can't move in until we have to move in a month early and that's going to cost us a whole extra month's rent and that's, you know, we're tight on money and all this stuff. And I, I would stay up for hours worrying. I mean, I remember waking up anxious in the morning about money, about, about if we were going to have enough money, if we were like wasting our money by moving in too early or if it was going to be too stressful by moving in too late. And it just had all this anxiety. And what I realized was, I told Katie about it and what I realized was, in those moments, my sense of security was in my money rather than in Christ. That's not, now, that's not to say that it's bad to save, right? It's okay to save money. It's okay to be frugal. It's okay to be careful with our money. The Bible even calls investing and working hard and saving up wisdom. Um, but what we must assess is, if our confidence is in our financial security, is our sense of security in our bank account. If our investment advisor called us tomorrow and said, hey, you know all that money you've been putting towards your retirement? I put it in this thing that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. It's all gone. What is our reaction? Is our sense of security really bound up in our financial sense of success, or is it in Christ? The diagnostic question to ask ourselves is, what makes me worry? What makes me worry? The third juror, let's think about the third juror, Pilate. So he rejected Christ and cherished expediency more. What is a way that we live expediently? How do we, how do we live that just gets us through? You know, that just deals with the problems and gets us through. Um, one of the things that I think, one of the ways we do this in our culture is uh, with political correctness. Um, it's this mindset that we always need to be speaking and acting in a way that is acceptable in the eyes of people, rather than what is based on convictions. There's a quote from um, John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, he just has this, I think it's up there, yeah. He has this uh, amazing work where he actually work, he works through this whole passage and the whole gospel accounts on Christ's cross. So in this, he says, It is easy to condemn Pilate and overlook our own equally devious behavior. Anxious to avoid the pain of a wholehearted commitment to Christ, we too search for convenient subterfuges. We either leave the decision to somebody else or opt for a half-hearted compromise, or seek to honor Jesus for the wrong reason, e.g. as teacher instead of as Lord. Or even we make a public affirmation of loyalty while at the same time denying him in our hearts. I might add to that, maybe we make a personal affirmation of loyalty while at other times being embarrassed of him publicly. 
not all political correctness is bad. You know, in, in the ways that it makes us more gracious and more sensitive, we should celebrate that. But in the areas that it makes us timid and accommodating, we ought to lament. Uh, in a lecture in Singapore several years ago, uh, Ravi Zacharias quoted this man who was um, writing about trends that he saw in modern countries. Uh, and he showed how, connected how these cultural trends are revealing of, what those, uh, of the nature of those countries. And so I'm going to read some of these things for you. First, Dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, and carriages were horseless, and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee caffeineless. Soon, oranges were seedless, the putting green was weedless, the college boy was hatless, the proper died fatless. New motor roads are dustless. The latest steel is restless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religion, godless. The pounding influence of secularism has moved our country and our culture far away from God. I grew up learning, what are the two things you don't talk about? What is impolite to talk about at the table with people, right? Religion and politics. It is politically incorrect to talk about God with people. We don't believe that, of course. But do we live like it? Do we shy away from conversations about God with people who don't know him? A diagnostic question about this, what makes me compromise? The fourth juror, let's think about the fourth juror. Do we fit in with this? Were the crowds, the crowds rejected Christ because they cherished popular ideas more than him. Now, what is a way that we buy into pop culture, popular ideas? Are there areas that we just, we just live according to this? Uh, now, this one that, that uh, really struck my heart is maybe a more, more specific, more tailored, um, but I, I think it's body image. You know, one popular idea in our culture is that your sense of worth and identity is very much bound up with your attractiveness. You see it everywhere. You know, images of supermodels, actors, actresses are on the covers of the magazines and the stores. It's on the commercials, on the TV shows. We watch America's Next Top Model. You know, we, we go to the movie theaters. We, we see it on billboards, uh, on the Internet. Uh, everywhere we go, advertisements... Everywhere we go, there's a constant cultural narrative that says that is beauty. And that's what you measure yourself by. Are we buying into it? Well, it depends on how we answer the diagnostic question. What makes me valuable? Are you valuable because of your attractiveness? Are you valuable because of your waistline, because of your height, because of your hairstyle, because of your olive complexion? Are you, value, or are you valuable because you are made by God and made in his image and made as his child? So in summary, where, where do we fall in all of this? Do we grasp for power by seeking comfortability? 
Do we grasp for prosperity by seeking security? Do we grasp for expediency by being politically correct? Do we buy into popular ideas like body image and attractiveness? What makes me afraid? What makes me worry? What makes me compromise? What makes me valuable? Would we have done the same thing to Christ? John Stott says in his book, If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priests, to our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old Negro spiritual asks. And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. So, where, do we, where does Jesus fit in all of this? In most gospel narratives, Jesus is central. Jesus is the one healing, he's the one teaching, he's conversing, dialoguing with his disciples, dialoguing, confronting the religious leaders. He's right in the middle of everything. But in this passage, unique in in all the gospel accounts, all the action is happening around him. He's right in the middle, but Jesus stands there silent. So silent that he even amazed the governor. Why was Jesus silent? Isaiah 53 prophetically foretells what Jesus would endure here. said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was offended, oppressed, and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. But he did say one thing. In response to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, yes. Jesus is the king we would never expect. But he is the king we desperately, desperately need. He is our merciful king. Though we rebelled against him, he came to save us. He paid our debt that we might go free. Perhaps you've heard the story of the king who felt far removed from his people and and oblivious to their wishes, and so he decided to know them better by stripping off his royal clothing, donning commoners' clothes, and walking amongst them to learn what they thought about his kingdom. Under the cloak of disguise, he conversed with commoners, but his heart was broken to discover that though he was a good king, 
They considered him a tyrant. In Christ, we have a king who fully knew us, fully knew our treacherous rebellion, but instead of crushing us with the punishment we deserved, he was crushed on our behalf. He not only laid aside his royal robe to become human, he laid aside his royal life. Who could fathom such a merciful king? He is our loving king. What was on his mind when he stood before his accusers silent, when he heard their accusations? Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That joy was you, God's estranged child, whom Christ was redeeming through his blood. Octavius Winslow says, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Through his love, we have new life. As Paul says in Galatians, this life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who could have imagined such a loving king? Lastly, he is our just king. In a world of terrorism, genocide, dictatorial massacres of civilians, we find ourselves yearning for justice. For those of you who've seen the Coney 2012 video, right? You know, we, we may disagree on what the best foreign policy approach is on intervening on this, or um, what the best strategic practice is. Uh, one thing we all agree on, though, when we see that video, is this deserves justice. This man must be brought to justice. Well, we have hope in Christ who has inaugurated his kingdom and will one day return to establish complete justice. As Revelation depicts him, he is the writer called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. In Psalm 98, we see, let the, sea res- let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Our king is merciful. Our king is loving. Our king is just. Jesus is the king we would never expect, but the king we desperately need. What do we do with King Jesus I shall see the king, all my tributes bring, and shall look upon his face. Then my song shall be how he ransomed me and has kept me by his grace. Is he your king? Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for your mercy to bear our sins reconcile us to you. Thank you for your love to draw us near to you. Thank you for your justice that one day you will reign just and supreme over all the earth. Lord, please reign in our hearts. Us broken sinners, rebellious subjects. Lord, be our king and save us. For Christ's sake, amen.